Good morning, church. If you'll remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 6, please. This morning we'll be looking at the remainder of Ezra chapter 6, verses 13 through 22. As I read before you now, remember that these are the words of the Lord. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king... Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of God, of the God of Israel, and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set up the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God the God of Israel. And thus far is the reading of God's word. You may be seated and let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we come before you this morning. Likely many of us here struggling to identify with what we see in the text. Joyfulness, celebration, a cleanliness from sin of purifying ourselves for work, for the temple of the Lord, for the kingdom of our God, we find ourselves in the same place that we always are, and that is inadequate for the task of understanding and rightly applying your word. We are weak creatures, Lord, and we need the help of our strong and faithful God, who is ever faithful to us, to help us this morning see rightly From this text, first and foremost, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, how he is the one who was able to ascend your holy hill. He was the one who obeyed the law perfectly. He is the one who never did wrong to his friends or took a bribe or sinned in any way. We need to see him first and foremost. And in addition to that, Lord, we need to see how because of Christ, We should live like him and have power to do that. Would you please grant us that this morning? As I speak, may it be your words that come to the people's ears, that they might be changed and conformed to the image of Christ. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Well, to this point, beloved, in our study of the book of Ezra, we have seen the sovereign power of our glorious God on full display as he has invited a uh, as he has initiated, excuse me, a Jewish reformation of sorts in Jerusalem, sending his people back to rebuild the city of God. He has faithfully and constantly helped them through their trials by great deliverances, just like the one that we saw in the text last week. The exiles themselves have demonstrated how people of God ought to act, and at times not act, during their difficulty and their trials which points us to lessons of contentment and consistency 
and faithfulness to the tasks that God has uniquely set before each of us. But in this morning's text and in the sermon, we're going to go a slightly different direction. What happens when God wins? What happens when God wins? What are the people of God supposed to do when he acts mightily on our behalf? What is the biblical response to the Lord's initiating a reformation? Earlier this morning, you sang the song of Moses, which came after the Israelites were liberated from the clutches of Pharaoh and after the Lord's great deliverance of his people at the parting of the Red Sea. The people of God did sing this exact song. But I've always cringed at how brief their celebration was. Moses doesn't have time to pen three more verses in Ezra 15 before the people of God start whining. They complain. They convert into gungus mooers, to use the Greek term. And so God ended their part of the story by keeping them out of the promised land entirely. In short, they failed to adequately respond to the glory of God's salvation. Beloved, it matters how we respond to God's dealings in our lives, not only the salvation of sinners through the blood atonement of Christ and the subsequent gift of faith from God, but also how we respond to every great deliverance of God in our lives. How should we react in those moments of divine intervention from our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Most of us were raised on a pessimistic view of the Christian life. We read Paul's words to Timothy, which say, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then we wrongly conclude that the Christian life is about expecting a long road of defeats and fail to look fail to look for and celebrate the deliverances that God regularly and graciously bestows. Ezra here in the text is detailing the new exodus. The reconstituted Israel in this morning's passage behaves quite differently from those from the first exodus. Here we see how God's people ought to respond when he brings reformation. Well, let's look at the text this morning, beginning with verse 13. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. Now we wonder how the people of God respond to the mighty hand of God. How would we respond? How will we respond? But the enemies of God in this passage aren't pushing back against God's mighty deliverance of his people at all. Tatanai and company received the letter back from Darius, the letter that they expected to be the defeat of their enemies, and it was quite the opposite. No, you conniving officials, Darius in effect says, you leave these folks alone and let them build, or else. And like one of those Hallmark cards that plays a sound when you open it, Tatanai unrolls the scroll a little further and you hear the sounds of Wesley screaming from the Princess Bride as he's tortured on the machine. Ah, that's what's going to happen to you. Now, Tatanai and his friends could have, I bet you weren't thinking about that. <laughs> Tatanai and his friends could have kept up the game and tried to get this work halted another way, but the whole lot of them does a complete about face. In unison, they all, catch this now, repent. Every one of them. They repent. Literally, that word means to change your mind. That's what the Greek word actually means. It means to change the mind. They changed their mind from attacking the, enemy, the, the people of God to ensure that all of the king's directives for the people of God are adequately carried out. It doesn't even appear that there was more than one opinion on the matter. The ESV says that they diligently 
did what they found in the letter. The KJV says that they did it speedily. The New Living Translation says that they complied at once. This is one of the more profound cases of corporate repentance that you see in the Bible. They had their plans. The king said, nope, you're going to do the opposite. And they, in fact, did. Well, you might say in reply, they just did that because of the threat of punishment. Yes, certainly they did. The threat of punishment was without a doubt a motivating factor. And I'm not arguing that suddenly all of these people converted to the Jewish faith and started following Yahweh. But the threat of punishment, beloved, is one of the major motivators in our proclamation of the gospel. The good news is not good news until we first share the bad news. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. He said that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He goes on to say, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. He says again, our Lord Jesus says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Once more, Jesus says, and these are all from the gospel of Matthew. He speaks of hell very frequently through the four gospels. The Lord Jesus saying, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. The good news is not good news until you know the bad news. Now, I know this is somewhat anecdotal for this text, beloved. But our God has delivered to us a letter of repent, return, and rebuild. And we should not be ashamed of that gospel word. And how the world will respond to it. Psalm 2 makes a similar declaration to the enemies of God. Very similar to what Darius has said. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This unashamed approach to evangelism must be heralded by the men of God who fear God and are not afraid of the response of the ungodly to the announcement that our king is returning. And this message should be heralded in its fullness by men who don't hide it to the point that their wives feel like they have to speak up in order to be faithful to God for their husbands. Now, I said earlier, the main point of this text today is to see how God's people respond to God's great deliverances and His mighty works. So let's look at the next verse in the passage. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet, And Zechariah, the son of Iddo. The very first thing that jumps off the page here, immediately following the Lord's great deliverances of his people, is that their work prospered. You see that right in the text. God's enemies were not the only ones to get a merit badge for being diligent at their work. The exiles had extra gas in the tank. They worked harder than ever with marked success. Remember, they're working with big building materials here. And yet God makes things run on all cylinders. The kitchen is now cooking with some grease. Consider a contrast with me for just a moment. Think of a time when you were working on a project so simple that your nine-year-old could have done it in just a few minutes. And yet everything that you do in that project seems to be working against you. Take, for example... Your wife asks you to pull out a drawer in the kitchen and retrieve an item that fell into the back of the cabinet. You pull the drawer forward gently, raising it slightly at the end to remove it, but it won't come out. Upon inspection, there appears to be a screw loose on the left side 
guide rail, and that will have to come out before you can remove the drawer completely. But in trying to remove the screw, you strip the head of the screw out, and so you resort to pulling it out of the cabinet wall with pliers, which breaks off a chunk of the particle board because all the best cabinets are made of particle board. And when you try and drill a new hole into the place for the rail to put back again, your drill punctures through the cabinet wall and hits a water line, and so on and so forth. You get the idea. Now consider the opposite scenario. Consider something completely different, okay? A task that you think will take you all day and it only ends up taking you a few hours. You think it's going to take all day to change the brakes on your truck and just for whatever reason you're able to get the jack out, all of your equipment's functioning perfectly, the calipers come loose very quickly, everything was easy. You get to the end of the job and you look at your watch and you're amazed at how fast that went. The latter story is essentially what Ezra is trying to communicate to us. That's the feeling that we're meant to get here. God had delivered his people from the plots of their enemies, and then he helped them to get moving. Now think about this for a minute, beloved. If we are going to be ready to respond rightly when God helps us, if we're going to be a part of the work of reformation, perhaps he is beginning in our days. We cannot fear a radical commitment to a high degree of rigor. This is part of the work of Reformation. God used 2020 to show us the state of the church, and things were a mess. But he seems to be stirring up hearts everywhere to get to work and build his kingdom again, one convert at a time. That work is moving more quickly than I've seen in my entire life, with greater success than I've ever seen. As a result, true rigorous discipleship is necessarily going to increase. That means that all of his people are going to have to get used to a new level of difficulty, a new level of hard, so to speak. Hard conversations leading to hard confessions, requiring hard forgivenesses. Daniel alluded to some of this in his prayer this morning, being bold, willing to rebuke people for their sins. Hard disciplines in reading the scriptures and meditation and memorization. Greater responsibilities at home, in the church, in the community. And with risk-taking for Jesus and a commitment to obedience to him, followed by an uncompromising spirit that doesn't let off the gas, God will provide the help. That's part of his work of reformation. He calls us higher and then he supplies the help that we need to get the job done. The grace is there to meet us, to give us the zeal to tackle the new hard, the new rigor. Has he not promised us, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. Well, again, we see a new commitment to a high degree of rigor. We see work that prospers, but we also see prosperous labor that was maintained over time. And that was due to the people's devotion to the word of God. You see that right there in the uh, portion of the passage I just read through the prophesying, prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. Now, most commentators at this point believe that what Haggai and Zechariah had prophesied that we have recorded in the scriptures had already been spoken over the people. That had already been said. That was done what is being prophesied here, the encouragement that's coming from the prophets, we don't have recorded for us in the scriptures because their prophesying was likely done about three to four years before the completion of the temple. This isn't a problem, however, since not every pronouncement of a prophet has been recorded in the scriptures. There are several examples of prophets, groups of prophets, and their prophecies were not recorded for us in the inspired word of God. The important thing to see here is the connection between the spoken word of God and the prophets and the prosperity of the work. God starts the engine of reformation with his mighty hand, but the gas that keeps the motor going is a steady stream of God's word. Think for just a minute about why we have such an emphasis at our church, at Christ the King, on reading the Bible, meditating on it, and on thinking about the word throughout the day. At Christ the King, we put together a Bible reading plan 
through our app, a plan which is likely going to change maybe a little bit over the coming years. But it takes the congregation through the Bible at least once a year. It is the word of God that has the power to change sinners. The word of God that Christ uses to conform us to his image. The word of God that nourishes and feeds the sheep of his pasture, that gives us strength and life for the work that he has delivered us to do. I had a brother recently tell me that keeping up with the Bible plan can be cumbersome at times. He loves the intake of large portions of scripture, but also longs for seasons where he can slow down and meditate on a passage. For those of you who are new to Christ the King, hear this from your elders. The Bible plan that we put out is a tool, it is not a law. You may not know that uh, when Jeremy created the app and also the printout sheet that goes with the app, he made sure to leave off boxes that you could check for each day. We don't want you to feel like you have to make sure you read every one. If you miss a day, it's okay. Just pick up the following day with the text for that day and keep moving. That's going to help you make it through your Bible. You're going to take in larger portions of Scripture. We believe that that's going to benefit your soul. If you have regular rhythms in the Word of God each day where you take smaller portions of Scriptures, you're meditating on those, don't feel pressured into disrupting something that's already working. We would ask you to consider whether it's time for a higher degree of rigor in your intake of the Word of God. Consider listening to the Word or the Bible reading plan while you're cooking or while you're driving for the sake of building a more robust knowledge and love of the truth. The Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Now, let's look again at verse 14 and going on to verse 15. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. The last thing you see in the first portion of our text this morning is that the exiles didn't just start a temple. They didn't accomplish most of the work, but they finished it. They got the job done. Credit for the completion of the work went, of course, to the decree given by God Almighty. Ezra is unashamedly putting God's name first ahead of the pagan kings, where it should be. But he does also acknowledge the kings whom God used to bring about the completion of the building. It's no surprise to see Cyrus and Darius's name there, but you notice the name Artaxerxes. Now, why is that name there? He wasn't involved in the construction of the temple. He'll be involved many years later on the building of the wall around Jerusalem. You can't see this in your English translation, but in the Hebrew, the text literally reads, And they have built and finished by decree of, and then goes on to list the names. This is a clue that Ezra intended the next chapter, chapter 7, when Ezra enters the story, to tie in his own generation and their efforts which likely has something to do with the finishing of all of the work, which is why that was included here and the name Artaxerxes in the wall. It's tying in those two generations. Now, lastly, the temple was completed on the 3rd of Adar, the last month of the Jewish calendar. The Jews have a saying connected to the month of Adar. They say, when Adar comes, joy is increased. This is the month when about 25 years from this point in the writing of Ezra, Xerxes would take the throne and Haman would later attempt his sinister plot to annihilate all of the Jews. And you know how that story goes. He dug a hole for God's people and fell into it himself. Now there's loads of meaning in the temple being completed at the end of the year. The writer of Psalm 65 captures the mood of this time period in Israel and also of the month of Adar with this agricultural metaphor. He says, You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. 
The meadows clothe themselves with flocks, and the valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Before we turn to the topic of celebration, which we're going to look at in just a minute with the next passage, pause briefly to consider. We can look at these verses and think, okay, so what am I supposed to do? What's my job? Give me my list. Tell me the things that God desires of me. I want you to notice, though, that this passage isn't full of a list of requirements. It's full of a people who are ready to respond to God. There's readiness in their hearts for his good work and an eagerness to respond in kind. God initiates, his people respond. That's the gospel story. That's our salvation. We love him because he first loved us. We wait for our husbandman, Christ, to initiate, and then we respond in kind. You see the right response from the members of the new exodus because these exiles were looking to God. They had no other choice. They had no help that was going to get them through this big task except God Almighty stepping in and helping them. They were waiting for God. Now, let me go back to what I said at the introduction about a pessimistic view of the world. I frequently hear that the world is as bad as it's ever been, that things just keep getting worse and worse. But that's okay because that's what's supposed to happen as we get closer to the end, so I guess we're on the right track. This sort of pessimistic thinking, and I want to put freedom of conscience as far as end times views to the side, but the idea that the world is terrible, it's all going to rot, God's off somewhere, we have no hope, is the kind of catechesis that Satan delights in. It takes our eyes off of Christ and a hope for any victory, even small victories, in this life. The response of the exiles to the greater difficulty that God put them in was a greater diligence to finishing the task. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 5, but the eye of the Lord their God was on the elders of the Jews. They did not stop until a report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. They got diligent. They got to work because they expected God to come through for them. They were looking to God. This isn't my attempt to try and slip in a little post-millennialism. I honestly haven't studied, beloved, eschatology enough to know where I firmly stand. Full disclosure, starting in January 2023, the elders are going to look through all three of the different views. The three of us are going to read books on each of the different perspectives together to help ground us a little bit better, at least as far as what these different views articulate and hopefully hone in what we believe and what we think and where we stand. But I do know this, beloved, regardless of which view you see the world headed towards, all of our lives, I know all of mine, I was told that the world was going to implode or explode First, it was going to happen in 1988, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. And then in 1990, and then in 93, and 97, and in 2000 with Y2K, and nuclear war, and global cooling, whoops, oh wait, warming, and the COVID plague. And beloved, I've just come to a point in my life where I just refuse to believe it anymore. I'm, I don't believe all of the nonsense that people are putting out there. Here's why. At this moment, as far as I can see, the gates of hell in our world are still standing. And Jesus promised that the church would tear those down before the end. Are you in readiness for God's great deliverances right now? Are you looking to God? Are you eagerly expecting him to deliver you from the trials that you're currently facing? Don't let the world or your family or the church or anyone else lull you into the belief that you have no hope and you are without God in the world. 
That is satanic nonsense. Remember, Paul taught us, that is not how you learned Christ. From Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Well, let's look at the next portion of Scripture, verses 16 to 18. If you look down at the text, you'll notice the very first thing the exiles did after they completed the task that God gave them was to what? It was to celebrate. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They finally cut the ribbon and they threw a block party. They celebrated. They responded to God's goodness by having a great time. Let's get out the nicest dishware. Let's make the best place settings and cook the best meals and sing psalms loudly and recount the great deliverance of our God for us. And God was pleased. His return on investment was a congregation with hearts full of joy, overflowing in a party hearty that was not forced, that was not under compulsion, but from rescued sinners who became cheerful givers. The church of Jesus Christ today needs to recover a theology of celebration. We're going to devote the remainder of our time this morning looking at how these exiles responded in their celebration for all that God had done for them. Do we have an outline, though? Can we have a basic idea? What are the essential elements of a theology of Christian celebration? I want to read to you from Psalm 126. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream." Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they, the nations, said amongst themselves, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Notice the progression. The Lord restored his people's fortunes. He delivered them. He came through for them. He remembered them and acted on their behalf for his own glory. And they stood there amazed. They were dazed, like they were in some kind of dream. How could this be happening to us? Yes, we prayed for rescue, but we didn't expect full restoration. We asked him to pinch hit for us. We weren't expecting a grand slam. Unfortunately, this is often where the Christian response to God's deliverance stops. We're amazed. We're bewildered. We're elated that our problems have been answered by the power of God. And then what? Then the tyranny of the urgent captures our attention again. And we're back off to the rat race. The hamster wheel of endless to-dos. Well, God understands. He answered the prayer and now he expects me to get back to work. American Christians want to sing the verses but leave out the chorus. We want to sing the verses, but we want to leave out the chorus. I stand for my two hours on Sunday, amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and wonder, and wonder, and wonder, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Our lives reflect that verse in the moment God sends help, but we don't turn around and sing the chorus. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be. Not so the writer of Psalm 126. He said, though they stood around dazed, amazed, like they were in a dream, then their mouths were filled with laughter, with shouts of joy. And that's exactly what these exiles in Ezra 6 did. They went to a shouting, a whooping, a hollering, because their God had brought them a great redemption. Do you think the enemies of God in Ezra's community replied the way the nations did in Psalm 126? The Lord has done great things for them. One of the greatest tools of evangelism the Lord has given to Christians is big-time celebration. The whole of Clinton ought to hear about what the Lord our God has done for us. Because it's constantly on our lips. There is nothing more repulsive than a people who claim to have the only hope for redemption 
from eternal damnation and they walk around with a frown chiseled on their faces. There's nothing more ridiculous than God's rescues from tribulations being responded to with anxiousness about something else that could happen in the future. There's nothing more wrong with a soul that can witness a great deliverance of God and respond with relief that, well, now that inconvenience is out of the way. I can get back to what I was wanting to do. When's the last time, beloved, that you celebrated anything that the Lord did in your life? I mean celebrated. Not just invited church friends and family over. Not just made an excellent spread, but had a lively conversation with the purpose of recounting to them what God did for you. And then you sang with them. You praised the Lord. This is the response of those who are looking to Christ, expecting his deliverance. Jesus said, What woman who has ten silver coins and loses one of them does not light a lamp, sweep her house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she does what? She calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. For I have found my lost coin. Brothers and sisters, no one can make a legitimate argument that the saints at Christ the King don't know how to throw a party. We do. But do we know how to celebrate God? When we get the deed to this building, we should come together and thank Him. When we have church members experience healing and deliverance from difficult procedures and have jobs turn around or housing issues resolved, Thanksgiving should not just be on our plates, but on our lips. And, and notice this. Another element that's easily overlooked in biblical celebration is what? Giving. What do the exiles do in addition to their feasting and singing and dancing? The text says that they offered at the dedication of the house 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs. They offered a sin offering of 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. They gave back to God for all that he had given them. Look at the horde of sacrifices that came in. They offered for the dedication of the temple as burnt offerings all of the bulls, the rams, and the lambs, and they also made offerings for their sins. Christians who celebrate well are often accused by the legalists as being licentious. But look here, there's no presumption of perfection, no puffed-up pride. They aren't under any pretenses that they have finally arrived. Celebration done in humility is not a lifeless celebration. We've been taught that all our lives. I'm celebrating God. I'm so thankful for what he's done for me. But if I smile, it's going to look like I'm actually taking joy in this world rather than God. That's crazy. True rejoicing and giving come from those who know how great their need is and that God met it in Christ Jesus. Now, somebody paid attention to me last week. And is probably thinking, but wait a sec, weren't they given all of those animals in order to sacrifice? Isn't that what Darius said? Whatever they need to make the sacrifices, you all should give them. So, Chris, he, he commanded that back in chapter 6, verse 9. So, is it really a sacrifice? Is it really giving? The simple response would be, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In addition, consider this, beloved. The human tendency to want to keep what we get. Ronnie Batchelor at Basswood Church would frequently chide our fleshy tendency to get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. How many of you, after years of work on a project for God on your own dime, would be ready to pass all returns back to God? 
One of the great dangers of thinking generationally, which we've encouraged you to do, with wealth and investments and projections and 500-year goals, one of the dangers of thinking this way is to forget that all that we get was given. Truly celebrating the giver involves giving back. I ask, beloved, when is the last time that you gave a gift to God in thanks for his help to you in addition to normal tithes and offerings? When's the last time you did something great in your life and you said, I I want God to know that I am so thankful. I'm going to give to him. I'm going to give to another brother or sister in the church. I'm going to give to the church. I'm going to give to missions. Give to our efforts overseas in Asia. When's the last time you responded to God's giving to you in a significant and profound way by giving back to him? In addition, a biblically rich response to God's giving to us will likely lead to us giving more than just our resources. In verse 18, they set or installed the priests in their divisions, the Levites in their divisions, for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. That's verse 18. The proper response to the building and dedication of the temple was to install the priests who would serve in that temple. Now, this may seem self-evident, But there is instruction and wisdom right here for us, beloved. The exiles were following the dictates of the law of Moses and setting apart servants for God's house to perform the duties of the priests. And we must follow the dictates and commandments of King Jesus who told us to go, make disciples, and teach them. And going means sending. It implies extending the kingdom of God. Yes, that means that people will leave. American Christians would rather build the kingdom of God through expansion, not extension. Remember that idea? Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can. We do that with church. I love all these people. Let's keep everybody here. What a thankless way to consider the kingdom of God. We are hoping for a building expansion in the next year or two to accommodate some of the growth that we're seeing. But we will, at some point in the future, need to plant a church. We hope we will plant many churches. One of the main reasons, beloved, I'll argue this to you. One of the main reasons that churches lose their spirit of celebration is because they want to keep all that they get instead of share the bounty of the Lord with others. We should be readying ourselves for the necessity of extending God's kingdom and rule through sending people out here in our area and also to the ends of the earth. Perhaps you would be considering even right now, Lord, is my response to how you have given to me being ready to go if you send me? Well, now we conclude with an even more significant celebration in the text in verses 19 through 22, the celebration of Passover. This will conclude our theology of celebration, which began in the month of Adar, that's February or March, give or take, in the Jewish calendar. But that ran right up into another feast day at the beginning of the year for the Jews, and that would be the Passover on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. We actually know exactly when this was. It was in 516 BC, and it was in late April of that year. Notice the readiness of response of the exiles. The congregation had already cleansed themselves in verse 20. They'd readied themselves for the worship of God for this highest day on the Jewish calendar. The Passover lamb was slaughtered for all of the people. The exiles partook of the lamb in verse 21. And so do all who lived in Judea, Samaritans and Gentiles, who had repented of their uncleanness to worship the Lord. Wait a second. It was shared with the nations? This is a direct command from Exodus chapter 12, verse 48. If a foreigner resides with you and wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover, all the males in the household must be circumcised. Then he may come near to celebrate it, and he shall be as a native of the land. 
Now this event should be enough to lay to rest any slander that Israel was engaged in some kind of church-sanctioned racism. Want to keep the nations away from Jewish worship? No. Keeping the nations from Jewish worship had nothing to do with another's ethnicity. It had everything to do with holiness. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was tacked on, as was the custom, to the Passover, and that lasted about seven days. And as you see, it was full of the joy of the Lord, and that joy was sustained by the grace of God. The text says that he delivered them from the hand of the king of Assyria, which it was common in antiquity to refer to rulers by lands that had been previously conquered, even by kings that came before them. But this is an interesting attestation, the king of Assyria. It serves another purpose. It's used as a literary device by Ezra. Long ago, when God brought the people into the promised land, he tested them by the surrounding nations. You know, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, so on and so forth. And when Israel failed that test by bowing down to the gods of those nations, Yahweh God began to judge them. And that judgment began with who? With Assyria. But look at this. Ezra here brings that picture completely full circle. O Israel, those that God originally used to judge you in the promised land are now being used to bless you in the promised land. God turning our enemies into victories. So what's the main point of this text for us today? What can we take and glean for our souls here as new covenant Christians? Just this, beloved. The celebration of every one of God's great deliverances in our lives reaches its apex when we celebrate the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Every deliverance you have ever experienced and every ounce of God-wrought joy that bubbles up out of the well of your heart is meant to help you see again excuse me, what John saw in Revelation chapter 5. I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. Do you remember several weeks ago when I quoted Chesterton who said that God is like a child? He says trillions of times a day to his creation, do it again. When we sit down to the dinner table, the thing that my kids say more than anything else is, Daddy, do you remember the time... Daddy, do you remember that time that lightning struck the tree next to the playhouse? Daddy, do you remember the time when Mr. Aaron wrestled Rudrick in the gravel driveway? Daddy, do you remember a time when we planted this church and you said that nobody would come? The countless stories of rescue from tribulation throughout the course of history are all pointing back to the great story of rescue at the cross. They are God in effect saying, do you remember the time? Jesus Christ is the supreme king and as the one who laid down his life for his people once for all time, who worked the most wonderful intercreational, interhistorical redemption by becoming the greatest substitutionary sacrifice and in so doing telling the greatest story ever told. It would only make sense that all other deliverances would become small side stories which allude to the great story of God in Christ. They would be little roads leading back to that one great escape, that one door to freedom, that one bread of life in the death camp of our sin, that one true vine, that time whence came the great Paschal Lamb. Calvin said, There is no worship that has truly pleased God except that which ultimately looked to Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, in every moment of God's mighty hand coming through for us, never forget to stop and worship Jesus Christ. The true celebration of the delivered ones of God will always find its telos, its end, its truest purpose, its greatest fulfillment in the worship of our Savior. So, get together, feast, toast, sing, dance, and then worship the Lord. And be ready to respond to God's great deliverances. I want to conclude this morning with a prayer from St. Augustine that Tammy and I have hanging on our wall at home. It adequately summarizes this conclusion to the first half of Ezra. Augustine says, God of our life, there are days when the burdens we carry chafe our shoulders and weigh us down. When the road seems dreary and endless, the skies gray and threatening. When our lives have no music in them and our hearts are lonely and our souls have lost their courage. Flood the path with light. Run our eyes to where the skies are full of promise. Tune our hearts to brave music. Give us the sense of comradeship with heroes of today and saints of every age. And so quicken our spirits that we may be able to encourage the souls of all who journey with us on this road of life to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Father, this is our prayer this morning. We come weary, but turn our hearts to the thought that you, our God, still to this day, because you do not change, fight for us. Where there is promise after promise, both in your word and we can expect in our future, because you love us and you are working all things for our good. Make us ready. People eager to respond when you deliver us from our trials, temptations, surroundings, difficulties. Help us that in that moment, when we do, we will respond rightly, not only feasting and singing and dancing and all sorts of joy, which we acknowledge is all given by you anyway, but that it would find its end, that we would stop and thank you again that all good things come to us because of Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.